Chapter Five of Parnassus on Wheels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Chapter Five. I gazed in astonishment at the wizened little rogue. Here was a new side to the amiable idealist. Apparently, there was a streak of fearless devilry in him besides his gentle love of books. I'm bound to say now, for the first time, I really admired him. I had burnt my own very respectable boats behind me, and I rather enjoyed knowing that he too could act briskly in a pinch. Well, I said, you are a cool hand. It's a good job for you that you didn't stay a schoolmaster. You might have taught your pupils some fine devilries. And at your age, too. I'm afraid my raillery goes a little too far sometimes. He flushed a bit at my reference to his age. And puffed sharply at his pipe. I say, he rejoined, how old do you think I am, anyway? Only forty-one by the bones of Byron. Henry the Eighth was only forty-one when he married Anne Boleyn. There are many consolations in history for people over forty. Remember that when you get there. Shakespeare wrote King Lear at forty-one, he added more humorously, and then burst out laughing. I'd like to edit a series of chloroform classics to include only books written after forty. Who was that doctor man who recommended anesthetics for us at that age? Now isn't that just like a medico? Nurse us through the diseases of childhood, and as soon as we settled down into permanent good health and worldly wisdom, and freedom from doctor's fees, why, he loses interest in us. Jove! I must note that down and bring it into my book. He pulled out a memorandum book and jotted down chloroform classics in a small, neat hand. Well, I said, I felt a little contrite, as I was sincerely sorry to have offended him. I've passed forty myself in some measurements, so youth no longer has any terrors for me. He looked at me rather comically. My dear madam, he said, your age is precisely eighteen. I think that if we escape the clutches of the sage of Redfield, you may really begin to live. Oh, Andrew's not a bad sort, I said. He's absent minded and hot tempered, and a little selfish. The publishers have done their best to spoil him, but for a literary man, I guess he's quite human. He rescued me from being a governess, and that's to his credit. If only he didn't take his meals quite so much as a matter of course. The preposterous thing about him is that he really can write, said Mifflin. I envy him that. Don't let him know I said so, but as a matter of fact, his prose is almost as good as Thoreau. He approaches facts as daintily as a cat crossing a wet road. You should see him at dinner, I thought, or I meant to think it, but the words slipped out. I found myself thinking aloud in a rather disconcerting way while sitting with this strange little person. He looked at me. I noticed for the first time that his eyes were slate blue, with funny bird's foot wrinkles at the corners. That's so, he said. I never thought of that. A fine prose style certainly presupposes sound nourishment. Excellent point, that. And yet Thoreau did his own cooking. A sort of boy scout, I guess, with a badge as kitchen master. Perhaps he took beechnut bacon with him into the woods. I wonder who cooked for Stevenson. Come he? 
The child's garden of verses was really a kind of kitchen garden, wasn't it? I'm afraid the commiserate problem has weighed rather heavily on you. I'm glad you got away from it. All this was getting rather intricate for me. I set it down as I remember it, inaccurately perhaps. My governess days are pretty far astern now, and my life in common sense rather than literary allusions. I said something of the sort. Common sense, he repeated. Good Lord, ma'am, sense is the most uncommon thing in the world. I haven't got it. I don't believe your brother has it, from what you say. Bach here has it. See how he trots along the road, keeping an eye on the scenery, and minds his own business? I never saw him get into a fight yet. Wish I could say the same of myself. I named him after Boccaccio to remind me to read Decameron some day. Judging by the way you talk, I said, you ought to be quite a writer yourself. Oh, talkers never write. They go on talking. There was a considerable silence. Mifflin relit his pipe and watched the landscape with a shrewd eye. I held the reins loosely, and Peg ambled along with a steady clop-clop. Parnassus creaked musically, and the mid-afternoon sun lay rich across the road. We passed another farm, but I did not suggest stopping, as I felt we ought to push on. Mifflin seemed lost in meditation, and I began to wonder a little uneasily how the adventure would turn out. This quaintly masterful little man was a trifle disconcerting. Across the next ridge I could see the Greenbrier church spire shining white. "'Do you know this part of the country?' I asked. "'Not this exact section. I've been in Port Vigor often, but then I was on the road that runs along the Sound. I suppose this village ahead is Greenbrier?' "'Yes,' I said. "'It's about thirteen miles from here to Port Vigor. How do you expect to get back to Brooklyn?' "'Oh, Brooklyn,' he said vaguely. Yes, I'd forgotten about Brooklyn for a minute. I was thinking of my book. Why, I guess I'll take the train from Port Vigor. The trouble is, you can never get to Brooklyn without going through New York. It's symbolic, I suppose. Again there was a silence. Finally he said, Is there another town between Greenbrier and Port Vigor? Yes, Shelby, I said, about five miles from Greenbrier. "'That'll be as far as you'll get tonight,' he said. "'I'll see you safe to Shelby, and then make tracks for Port Vigor. "'I hope there's a decent inn at Shelby where you can stop overnight.' "'I hoped so, too, but I wasn't going to let him see "'that with the waning afternoon my enthusiasm was a little less robust. "'I was wondering what Andrew was thinking, "'and whether Mrs. McNally had left things in good order. "'Like most Swedes,' She had to be watched, or she left her work only three-quarters done. And I didn't depend any too much on her daughter, Rosie, to do the housework efficiently. I wondered what kind of meals Andrew would get, and probably he would go right on wearing his summer underclothes, although I had already reminded him about changing. Then there were the chickens. Well, the Rubicon was cross now, and there was nothing to be done. To my surprise... Little Redbeard had divined my anxiety. "'Now don't you worry about the sage,' he said kindly. "'A man that draws his royalties isn't going to starve. "'By the bones of John Murray, his publishers can send him a cook if necessary. 
This is a holiday for you, and don't you forget it. And with his cheering sentiment in my mind, we rolled sedately down the hill toward Greenbrier. I am about as hardy as most folks, I think, but I confess I balked a little at the idea of facing the various people I know in Greenbrier as the owner of a book van and the companion of a literary huckster. Also I recollected that if Andrew should try to trace us, it would be as well for me to keep out of sight. So, after telling Mr. Mifflin how I felt about matters, I dived into the Parnassus and lay down most comfortably on the bunk. Buck the terrier joined me, and I rested there in great comfort of mind and body as we ambled down the grade. The sun shone through the little skylight, gilding a tin pan that hung over the cook-stove. Tacked here and there were portraits of authors, and I noticed a fading newspaper cutting pinned up. The headlines ran, Literary Peddler Lectures on Poetry. I read it through. Apparently the professor, so I had begun to call him, as the aptness of the nickname stuck in my mind, had given a lecture in Camden, New Jersey, where he had asserted that Tennyson was a greater poet than Walt Whitman. And the boosters of the Camden poet had enlivened the evening with missiles. It seemed that the chief Whitman disciple in Camden is Mr. Trouble, and Mr. Mifflin had started the rumpus by asserting that Tennyson, too, had troubles of his own. What an absurd creature the professor was, I thought, as I lay comfortably lulled by the rolling wheels. Greenbrier is a straggling little town built around a large common meadow. Mifflin's general plan in towns, he had told me, was to halt Parnassus in front of the principal store or hotel, and when a little throng had gathered he would put up the flaps of the van, distribute his cards, and deliver a harangue on the value of good books. I lay concealed inside, but I gathered from the sounds that this was what was happening. We came to a stop, I heard a growing murmur of voices and laughter outside, and then the click of the raised sides of the wagon. I heard Mifflin's shrill, slightly nasal voice making facetious remarks as he passed out the cards. Evidently Bach was quite accustomed to the routine, for though his tail wagged gently when the professor began to talk, he lay quite peaceably dozing at my feet. "'My friends,' said Mr. Mifflin, "'you remember Abe Lincoln's joke about the dog?' "'If you call a tail a leg,' said Abe, "'how many legs has a dog?' Five, you answer. No, says Abe, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Well, there are lots of us in the same case as that dog's tail. Calling us men doesn't make us men. No creature on earth has a right to think himself a human being if he doesn't know at least one good book. The man that spends every evening chewing Piper Heidesick at the store is unworthy to catch the intimations of a benevolent creator. The man that's got a few good books on his shelf is making his wife happy, giving his children a square deal, and he's likely to be a better citizen himself. How about that, parson? I heard the deep voice of Reverend Cain, the Methodist minister. You're dead right, professor, he shouted. Tell us some more about books. I am right with you. Evidently Mr. Kane had been attracted by the sight of Parnassus, and I could hear him muttering to himself, 
as he pulled one or two books from the shelves. How surprised he would have been if he had known I was inside the van. I took the precaution of slipping the bolt of the door at the back, and drew the curtains. Then I crept back into the bunk. I began to imagine what an absurd situation there would be if Andrew should arrive on the scene. You are all used to hucksters and peddlers and fellows selling every kind of junk, from brooms to bananas, said the professor's voice. But how often does anyone come round here to sell you books? You've got your own town library, I dare say, but there are some books that folks ought to own. I've got em all here from Bibles to cookbooks. They speak for themselves. Step up to the shelves, friends, and pick and choose. I heard the parson asking the price of something he had found on the shelves, and I believe he bought it. But the hum of voices around the flanks of Parnassus was very soothing, and in spite of my interest in what was going on, I'm afraid I fell asleep. I must have been pretty tired. Anyway, I never felt the van start again. The professor said he looked in through the little window from the driver's seat and saw me sound asleep. And the next thing I knew, I woke up with a start to find myself rolling leisurely in the dark. Bach was still lying over my feet, and there was a faint musical clang from the bucket under the van, which struck against something now and then. The professor was sitting in front, with a lighted lantern hanging from the peak of the van roof. He was humming some outlandish song to himself with a queer, monotonous refrain. Shipwrecked was I off soft parouse, and right along the shore, and so I did resolve to roam the country to explore. Tommy Rip Falal and the Balam Tip, Tommy Rip Falal I dee, and so I did resolve to roam the country for to see. I jumped out of the bunk, cracked my shins against something, and uttered a rousing halloo. Parnassus stopped, and the professor pushed back the sliding window behind the driver's seat. Heavens, I said, Father Time, what o'clock is it? Pretty near supper time, I reckon. You must have fallen asleep while I was taking money from the Philistines. I made nearly three dollars for you. Let's pull up along the road and have a bite to eat. He guided Pegasus to one side of the road, and then showed me how to light the swinging lamp that hung under the skylight. No use to light the stove on a lovely evening like this, he said. I'll collect some sticks and we can cook outside. You get your basket of grub and I'll make a fire. He unhitched Pegasus, tied her to a tree, and gave her a nose-bag of oats. Then he rooted around for some twigs and had a fire going in a jiffy. In five minutes I had bacon and scrambled eggs sizzling in the frying-pan, and he had brought out a pail of water from the cooler under the bunk and was making tea. I never enjoyed a picnic so much. It was a perfect autumn evening, windless and frosty, with a dead black sky and a tiny rim of new moon like a thumbnail paring. We had our eggs and bacon, washed down with tea and condensed milk, and followed by bread and jam. The little fire burned blue and cozy, and we sat on each side of it, while Bach scoured the pan and ate the crusts. "'This your own bread, Miss McGill?' he asked. "'Yes, it is,' I said. "'I was calculating the other day 
that I've baked more than four hundred loaves a year for the last fifteen years. That's more than six thousand loaves of bread. They can put that on my tombstone. The art of baking bread is as transcendent a mystery as the art of making sonnets, said Redbeard. And then your hot biscuits? They might be counted as shorter lyrics, I suppose. Triolets, perhaps. That makes quite an anthology, or a doxology, if you prefer it. Yeast is yeast, and west is west, I said, and was quite surprised at my own cleverness. I hadn't made a remark like that to Andrew in five years. I see you are acquainted with Kipling, he said. Oh, yes, every governess is. Where and whom did you govern? I was in New York with the family of a wealthy stockbroker. There were three children. I used to take them walking in Central Park. Did you ever go to Brooklyn? he asked abruptly. Never, I replied. Ah, he said, that's just the trouble. New York is Babylon. Brooklyn is the holy city. New York is the city of envy, office work, and hustle. Brooklyn is the region of homes and happiness. It is extraordinary. Poor, harassed New Yorkers presume to look down on low-lying, home-loving Brooklyn, when, as a matter of fact, it is the precious jewel their souls are thirsting for, and they never know it. Broadway. Think how symbolic the name is. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. But in Brooklyn the ways are narrow, and they lead to a heavenly city of content. Central Park, there you are, the center of things, hemmed in by walls of pride. Now how much better is Prospect Park, given a fair view over the hills of humility? There is no hope for New Yorkers, for they glory in their skyscraping sins. But in Brooklyn, there is the wisdom of the lowly. So you think that if I had been a governess in Brooklyn, I should have been so contented that I would never have come with Andrew and compiled my anthology of six thousand loaves of bread and the lesser lyrics? But the volatile professor had already soared to other points of view and was not to be thwarted by argument. Of course Brooklyn is a dingy place, really, he admitted. But to me it symbolizes a state of mind, whereas New York is only a state of pocket. You see, I was a boy in Brooklyn. It still trails clouds of glory for me. When I get back there and start work on my book, I shall be as happy as Nebuchadnezzar when he left off grass and returned to tea and crumpets. Literature among the farmers, I'm going to call it, but that's a poor title. I'd like to read you some of my notes for it. I'm afraid I poorly concealed a yawn. As a matter of fact, I was sleepy, and it was growing chilly. Tell me first, I said, where in the world are we, and what time is it? He pulled out a turnip watch. It's nine o'clock, he said, and we're about two miles from Shelby, I should reckon. Perhaps we'd better get along. They told me in Greenbrier that the Grand Central Hotel in Shelby is a good place to stop at. That's why I wasn't anxious to get there. It sounds so darn like New York. He bundled the cooking utensils back into Parnassus, hitched Peg up again, and tied Bach to the stern of the van. Then he insisted on giving me the two dollars and eighty cents that he had collected in Greenbrier. 
I was really too sleepy to protest, and, of course, it was mine anyway. We creaked off along the dark and silent roads between the pine woods. I think he talked fluently about his pilgrim's progress among the farmers of a dozen states, but, to be honest, I fell asleep in my corner of the seat. I woke up when we halted before the one hotel in Shelby, a plain, unimposing country inn, despite its absurd name. I left him to put Parnassus and the animals away for the night, while I engaged a room. Just as I got my key from the clerk, he came into the dingy lobby. "'Well, Mr. Mifflin,' I said, "'shall I see you in the morning?' "'I had intended to push on to Port Vigor tonight,' he said. "'But as it's fully eight miles, they tell me, "'I guess I'll bivouac here. "'I think I'll go into the smoking-room "'and put them wise to some good books. "'We won't say good-bye till tomorrow.' "'My room was pleasant and clean.' fairly so. I took my suitcase up with me, and had a hot bath. As I fell asleep, I heard a shrill voice ascending from below, punctuated with masculine laughter. The pilgrim was making more converts. End of chapter 5